0: tell us, I guess, what did you learn in that space that was unique? Yeah. So some things that are relevant to the conversation we're having today, some others. So I had got my background has been mostly in B2B financial services, fintech, and really with a deep spike on capital markets. And so working in a group like that has really helped me broaden my perspective on what's really relevant across industries, across customer types, Um, And to some degree, even across geographies, we looked at some international deals as well, and that Interplay and the depth of experience you get across the group. There are about two thousand people on kind of the broader mailing list. We've had you know um, over over two thousand people come to the different events. We've had you know almost three hundred accredited investors. So we've got this really deep reservoir of mm-hmm. expertise across a range of industries. And I just learn a ton by listening to the questions that others have uh, that have expertise in areas that I don't. So that's one thing that's been really great for me personally. I think on the investing side, it's given me a lot of volume. Right. So we we review around 400 pitches a year, excuse me, uh, decks a year. And we'll review probably around 50 to 60, actually more than that. It's almost a hundred video pitches a year. And so it just gives you reps. And those reps, there's nothing like that. Just giving you reps to see how people are prepared, what are the types of questions that you can ask? What are some of the common themes that you see for those that are, are more successful startups mm-hmm. and founders who are more successful and less? And that that's helped me immensely, both on the operator side so as a, a founder myself in different areas but also on the investor side to just get smarter and up the curve a lot faster ron can you tell us a little bit more about yourself as well kind of like how you got in the space what's your origin story
1: so i think uh it's funny lawrence and i always marvel at how many different ways we could have met we are overlapped in so many <laughs> so many different areas of our kind of histories and backstories but i think now is now it's definitely it's been the time. But I too have been, at some point, you're old enough where your resume spills onto a couple of pages. I started actually, ironically, on Wall Street. So I came out of college, liberal arts education. I knew one thing. I just didn't know what that thing meant. I wanted to work in business. I figured the place to start was in investment banking. And true to, uh, true to form, I learned a ton about how to look at, analyze, break down businesses, understand kind of drivers uh, and sort of see them and, you know, kind of explode in three space. I was specifically working on uh, leverage finance deals, so a ton of media, telecom, Uh, not a bunch of tech, interestingly enough because uh, I wasn't working on the equities desk, right? This is to date myself, you know, 98, 99, like that. Uh, and so, you know, I remember the moment where I was reading about the appreciation of like PayPal stock and like, I was like, man, this internet thing is gonna be huge. Like I'm old enough for like, I had that thought, right? I've yeah. been online for years, but as a business, for as an aspiring business person, not knowing what it meant, I remember that feeling, and I, and I love to tell this part of the story. I remember thinking as I was watching like dog.com or like all these kind of like these now stories, right? Of, you can buy a domain name, but still not have a business and fail, even if you raise millions of dollars. I remember the moment where I was like, you know, there's a chance I'm going to miss this internet thing, mm. this idea that it was going to be fixed. It was going to be solved before I had a chance to kind of jump in. And not unlike uh, something Lawrence said, I knew that while I was getting a good learning on Wall Street, I was mostly sitting on the sideline, right, as an analyst, helping other businesses. And leverage finance is interesting because you're, you're usually looking at businesses at an inflection point. They're either going to flame out, right, or kind of take that non-investment grade debt and kind of go find growth and do interesting stuff kind of reborn that's all great but we weren't actually doing the building right and so i too wanted to kind of get out and build so you kind of take those two ideas not want to miss the internet and wanted to build. And I jumped in with both feet, followed a, a guy kind of a knew through network to go build against urban commerce community. So, very much ahead of its time, got another similar lesson, which was you can be right and be early and still be wrong, essentially. So, we raised a little bit of money, we're not well capitalized. He was the main man I was kind of there to learn and kind of build the infrastructure of like operations and finance. And we got picked up and kind of acquired by a traditional private equity backed black media company called Vanguard Media, Honey Heart and Soul, some kind of classic titles, but I kind of came out of that experience realizing that it's not enough to have a good idea, right? And it's not enough to, you know, kind of be on the internet, as silly as that sounds. Um, and so I kind of, coming out of that experience, I spent the next couple of years consulting uh, independently and ultimately built a non-tech business, right? I was kind of, sort of felt my first kind of shivers of maybe after the internet kind of crashed, right? And of the market imploded, maybe I should build something more traditional. So I built a mm-hmm. test prep and tutoring company. And so I went from learning about internet to, well, I'm just going to go build a business with like molecules and Adams and like built this really interesting and successful practice in the New York City market and Scholastic noticed and sort of asked me to come and do corp dev and strategy work there, which today I think we call you know kind of innovation type work. And so bopped around in there, tried to get some stuff done. Got to acquire some companies and spin out some companies, which was, again, kind of fleshed out, you know, kind of an important part of my education of like valuing businesses and understanding the mechanics of why people buy stuff. Um, and then got that itch again, right? The internet was booming. I was thinking back on the West Coast. You know, had I done that, my life would probably look very different. But right as I was literally thinking about like packing up and moving out West to go where the Internet really gets built, I kind of looked around and realized I was connected to folks who were building big in New York City. Um, this is 2000 seven, eight, like Mm. things were really beginning to jump off in New York City as as an actual kind of center, the kind of, you know, double click mafia, like all those kind of centers of East Coast tech excellence. And so just to kind of jump forward really quickly, you know, basically a year later, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, kind of took a year off to kind of, you know, decide what to try to build, didn't have a real target. I convinced a stranger on Craigslist to rent me a motorcycle, as bizarre as that sounds to convince, to impress a girl, my girlfriend at the time. Transaction was amazing. Hey, this guy 250 bucks instead of buying a motorcycle. Impress the girl, married her, have two kids with her now. And by the way, not a scalable way to do that to date. But most importantly, that gave me the seed idea for Snapgoods, which was, we were kind of early entrance kind of pioneers in the sharing economy uh, space. Mm-hmm. And so that then was my first time like raising, raised a couple million bucks around that. And, you know, kind of move forward from there, had a bunch of success that got me on some magazine covers and in some articles that my mom could take to church but wasn't fixated enough on the uh, the kind of customer journey. And so the most important lesson, the way that I wound up kind of investing, ultimately advising was, again, good idea, could tell the story in the sort of boardroom, but kind of get people to give me money, wasn't focused on product market fit. And so, whereas I have business experience in kind of B2B space enterprise, my kind of consumer, my, my tech startup focus primarily has been uh, consumer facing until I began advising company flames out. I sell it back to one of my investors. I thought I was never going to work in technology again. And three or four different peers showed up and were like, we would love your help with stuff. And I didn't even know what that meant. But effectively, they were like, you know what not to do, right? You know how to actually get the product market fit because you didn't do it kind of deal. And so that started my practice around product strategy and growth and then City Ventures came and asked if I wanted to help here at City Ventures. And along the way, I realized helping entrepreneurs find that fit, kind of keep that focus on customer is really kind of my superpower. And so as I saw enough of those to the point about reps, it has made sense to kind of really start to dip my toe and now a whole foot into investing more active.
0: So. What was that experience like of basically you're, you're walking into these rooms where, you know, it's a surprise in itself of like, it's a very novel thing for these these people. What was that like in two thousand nine or on that period, and and kind of what are you seeing different now?
1: So we definitely couldn't have beards back then so i'm happy that that's changed you know i think you raise a really important question gareth right i think we all know the reality of the answer i'm going to give which is yeah despite the fact that i'm on paper well educated despite the fact that i can complete most of my sentences despite the fact that i knew more about technology than some of the people i was talking to there was always yeah. that moment of having to signal affirmatively that i deserved to be in that room there wasn't a lot of this right there weren't a lot of networks if you think about the amount of capital that now has gone to Black women, specifically women in general, just in the past year, Black people in general, in the past year, the change in capital allocated to supporting diverse founders, the world was, it was this bit. I mean, there's, you know, you either you knew the, the few Black angel investors or you didn't, right? Yeah. And so dramatically different, and I think in some ways I carried that, right? Like that was I didn't so much raise fifty million dollars, two million dollars, as I did raise fifty thousand dollars forty times. It felt like, right? Like, yeah. but like I was always kind of like seeking out. I didn't do that. Oh, here's an idea, back the napkin, and so it was just like, dude, here's five million bucks. I didn't get the seven years of grace that like a a, a Dens did. You know, Dennis of Foursquare, who's awesome, super smart. That dude raised $88 dollars years into Mm. what was a very successful and then sideways and then dwindling business, eighty-eight million dollars of venture debt after already raising somebody check my math, tens of millions of dollars, you know, already in equity. And so I didn't have enough benefit. The good news is I was able to leverage network, like stand on the shoulders of folks who kind of have my back. And I think that in some ways is what we're trying to replicate is there's an element here of, if one of us has a foot in the door, if two of us have feet in the door, we are working hard to wedge that thing open, right? And so I think that's where there's a self-awareness and a sentience, I think, to this moment that we're having, all of us, we're having this call because of that, right? We're aware that it wasn't fair and we're trying to make it more fair, right? Or at least do it ourselves, kind of collectively. So- I actually want
0: to add one more thing on that too, just to bring this point home. In two thousand and nine, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, you know, we obviously lived through the housing crisis, and in New York, we had this kind of economic, this financial crisis. But we didn't have we, the the networks that Ron described couldn't have existed back then because they were very school based, so affinity group based, so your school, your your fraternity, others, or ge- geography based. You knew people in New York or in Atlanta or here. Yeah. And one of the things to me that's been a real sort of driver is, is just social media. For all all the negatives that are about it, but it's really removed geography as an impediment to expanding people's networks, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and many other things that it's done as positive. Um, obviously, a lot negative as well. But that's one for me. Like I talk to people regularly now and interact with people regularly. From far more places today than I did 10 years ago. So, in some ways, it's, I find that social media is able to like scale your networks and scale your, your opportunities in a way that was just impossible to do even you know, 10, 11, well, 15 years ago now. It's yeah.
1: also, I think that's a good point, Lawrence. I'll just add one thing to that to the social media point specifically, it's brought down the barrier, right? The sort of, mm-hmm. you know, what did it look like before to get on Lawrence Latimer's calendar you know, 15 years ago? Maybe it was easy 15 years ago, but but it might've been harder, right? If you were where you are now, 15 years ago for a person to get that introduction, get a coffee, right? Like if that was sort of threshold, that's a lot. And so that has also changed the accessibility portion is much higher. Are there any other things that you see like recurring mistakes that you see that kind of take people out of the running or demonstrate that they're not ready off the bat? So I am a stickler for, and this is true in the context of like my day job when I'm you know, working with entrepreneurs and residents who are like helping business leaders inside the business. If you as a starting place are like super sold on the solution, the feature set, like you're knee deep and like the, it's gonna be the dopest tech it's gonna be location-based, it's gonna read your brain, it's on the blockchain, like you're focused on that. And I'm like, cool, who has that problem today exactly? How do they articulate the problem in their own words and how do they solve it today without your amazing sounding futuristic solution and you can't answer those questions again everybody you know through the lens of my own lived multitude of mistakes on this front not demonstrating to me a sufficient understanding of your market your kind of initial key customers and what their real needs are that is always the place one where i'll coach you up and i'm happy to talk about it. it's not like a can't believe you don't know it it's a if, if that's a major blind spot you don't recognize As Lawrence also said, you're going to probably get most of it wrong. That's the the dirty, open secret, right? We're all going to get some of this wrong. If you don't demonstrate real attentiveness to that kind of detail around customer, product to market, then I worry. That's that's probably my first big one.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll co-sign 100% on that. I, I would probably generalize that you're just being prepared for the conversation you're having. And so you've got to demonstrate that you understand things in a sequential fashion in many ways, right? So somebody who comes to me and like understands all about VC, but doesn't really understand their market, like you've got that out of order, right? You, like, great, you know how to raise and you've got the great relationship. If you can't tell me a great story about a problem and a, and a solution, you're never going to get to that, to, to the stage where folks are taking you seriously. So just that preparation, you know, and being really steeped in, in your problem. You know, whether or not you're the technical lead or the business lead, or whatever, if you're the founder of that company, a big part of your job is just telling the story. And so, if you can't tell the story in, in a really compelling fashion and from a fact base, it's really, really tough to get beyond that.
1: What types of timelines and ROI do VCs, or specifically angel investors, right? Early stage funding, what types of returns are they looking for and in what period of time? Like, what's ideal? What's a, what's a perfect deal for you guys? I'm, I'm going to jump in because I, I, I think I, I've got some conviction on as you'd say about this one. <laughs> I think we, we are in many ways beholden to, for now, that's, that's, that's why I want to jump in this, the sort of traditional kind of dollars in time for, you know, dollars out kind of time frame, right? So your typical VC would say like for early stage, it's, you know, a fund is seven years, let's say, right? And so like they're going to put that money and they may not see it for seven to 10 years, right? It might be kind of an acceptable period. And as angel investors, we're there before them, right? So this money goes away for a while, right? So you kind of expect to go away for seven to 10 years, maybe more if it doesn't go well, and maybe forever. I think one of the things that you have to sort of be prepared for as you talk to angels is, is you know, you got to be talking to folks who have a reasonable expectation that they may never see it again and are comfortable with that. I definitely took money from somebody once who had had an exit, was not black, the purposes of this, this audience, it's actually a white person took money. And then when it didn't go well, he was like, man, I really could have used that money. And I was like, (laughs) that's, that's not how you play this game. Like you can't, you know, that's not, that's not fair. So it really is. There's a longer timetable than you think. I think the typical multiples that funds there, what is it? Ninety percent of funds will go to zero, and so for that ten percent, they're looking for ten x to kind of get to an average return of five x. Want to check my math?
0: Roughly, yeah.
1: <laughs> roughly. No, but I'm, I mean, right? Like, they're at the end of the day, like, like you, you don't get to stay in business and do your third, fourth, fifth fund as a venture capitalist unless you kind of see those that kind of five x yeah, type yeah, return yeah, yeah. across the fund, and the math just doesn't support that coming from all the investments, So it's from a small percentage. So.
0: Yeah. And if I could, just, I know we're, we're at time, a couple of things. So I'm seeing some of the names pop up of like other black angel groups or early stage funding. And I, I, I'm joking, all but one we've all heard of because we've all heard of it. And, I, you know, Ron and I have been working on just building out a database of data, so some of that aren't n- nearly as, as um, competitive, but like this is exactly what we look. So I appreciate you guys putting those in there. Um, and, and, you know, we're certainly keeping track of that. And there should be more um, notoriety and more awareness of some of these, th- these other angel groups that are out there that are doing incredible work just aren't getting necessarily attention which means to me it indicates to me they aren't necessarily seeing the best deals because if folks in this audience haven't heard of them you know then i get enough people who are ringing their doorbell saying i've got the next great idea and then, you know, just in terms of the, that time frame, I've signed up for everything that Ron just said. It's a long haul. And if you expect anything haul. to come back before 10 years, um, you shouldn't be doing this.
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the asterisk that I put, the part that I get passionate about over, over kind of, you know, beers or coffee is, I think there's an alternative model in the future. I think we ha- kind of have to play the rules as they, let play the game with the rules that we kind of have today. But I think if you look at things like ClearBank, C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C, um, there are folks coming to market. I actually want to say collab funds come up with like a profit sharing mechanism these mechanisms exist to dilute founders less and have good outcomes for all at smaller exits. The problem with venture capital funds, and everybody should know this, the math sucks, right? For most founders. And the statistics are something like 80% of founders would have done financially better had they sold for the ones that get to like a series C, D, E. They would have done better had they sold before their series B, just in terms of like, if it was going pretty well, there's a point at which you have to get so big to exit that from a stress adjusted perspective and everything else, you've actually, and like actual financial uh, outcomes, you might've done better at your series A, series B. So just keeping in mind, like, there might be a future in which you can access capital and somewhere way up in the chat, I'd seen kind of, a, I'd like to know about what's the right funding for me. There are alternatives. I'm not trying to talk us out of, out of uh, you know, deals here, but understand that like all those tools together might make it more equitable for us to build collectively and not require unicorn status for us to have decent returns that kind of change yeah. our community's uh, outcomes. <music>